This is 30 Wood, a podcast celebrating the 30th anniversary of Fernwood Publishing. In this series, we talk to Fernwood authors about their work, their activism, and why radical publishing is so critical. In this episode, I talk with the legendary Danny Paul. Danny is the author of two Fernwood books, Chief Lightning Bolt and We Were Not the Savages, a foundational text on the history of settler colonialism and the European invasion of Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq. In addition to his writing, Danny is also a former Justice of the Peace. He's worked for the Department of Indian Affairs and was a founding executive director of the Confederacy of Mainland Mi'kmaq. He's written for magazines, periodicals, hundreds of newspaper columns, and is well-known across Mi'kma'ki. Here's our conversation. Danny Paul, welcome. Yes, thank you, and uh, looking forward to having a chat with you. Yeah. Can you introduce yourself to listeners of the podcast who might not be familiar with your work? Well, it's a long story. I'll give you a short version. Uh, I'm a Mi'kmaq elder, author, and uh, uh, many other things along the way. Uh, uh, I was born in Indian Brook. Uh, Nova Scotia, Indian Brook Reserve, Indian, and uh, now live in Halifax and uh, have uh, written we such books as We Were Not the Savages and uh, Chief Light and Bolt and many uh, chapters for other books for, and uh, been involved with the writing profession for several years now. Hmm. Now, you are one of the few authors that I'm talking to who has written both fiction and nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the difference between those kinds of writing and what you like about each? Well, nonfiction, of course, you uh, have to have the case that we were not savages. It's uh, a history book and uh, references in the back where individuals who want to question the accuracy of the statements in the book can go to Nova Scotia archives, Canadian archives, or British archives, American, what have you, and verify the facts that are in it. Fiction is uh, um, based on historical research where, uh, in the case of Chief Lightning Bolt, where I used that to piece together what the uh, an ancient Mi'kmaq chief uh, would have uh, uh, traveled through an honorable uh, life and wound up being chief of his nation and so so forth and so on. And that's uh, the difference between the two. It's, uh, of course, when you're writing fiction, you don't have any uh, 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 references in the back of it because uh, it's not a, a history book. Hmm. How have people reacted to these two books? Um, the, the the way that uh, a reaction to so- someone that's read your fiction, how is it different to the, the 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 readers that use and rely on "We Were Not the Savages" for research or understanding the history of the land? Well, for "We Were Not the Savages," I had great reaction, and here in Nova Scotia, in nineteen. 19- 
in the late 1980s, I decided that uh, the true history of uh, the province in Canada should be brought out of the closet and put on the table and uh, uh, put an end to some of the fairy tales that passed uh, as history in the past, in particular about the relationship between the Big Ma and the British, which was, uh, in my opinion, nothing but a fairy tale. The uh, Mi'kmaq uh, suffered under the hands of the British uh, colonial invasion. Uh, everything from out-and-out -out genocide to uh, uh, starva malnutrition, starvation, and exclusion from uh, the economic reality of this province and country over a long period of time. And it's all recorded and backed up by the documents left behind by the official, uh, officialdom from uh, the British and French uh, uh, sources that are quite reliable who were about Mi'kmaq territory at that point in time. I imagine that your your book has become a critical reference for people who want to explore and want to research and understand that history. How have you seen your work influence a mainstream understanding of settler colonialism in Nova Scotia? Well, I guess all you have to look uh, uh, to see the influence it had is that uh, in 1993, when the first edition was published, there was a statue of Edward Cornwallis in a park, uh, with a park uh, located in the park named Cornwallis Park. Uh, many buildings in the city of Halifax were uh, named after him and many streets across the province and so forth and so on. And uh, today in 2022, uh, uh, virtually all of them are gone, but a few exceptions, and I understand most of them will be gone in the near future. So uh, when you put the, tree, uh, the truth on the table, I think... Uh, over a long period of time, you can convince people that they should uh, begin to look at the history with a different viewpoint and uh, come up to better conclusions than what they did in the past. And uh, and uh, when you're looking at the, you know the European invasion of the Americas, you're probably looking at the worst case of uh, genocide that ever happened in the world and. Uh, the destruction of civilizations and two continents. And uh, I don't think in any uh, kind of history book you've ever read that you've ever read such a thing before, but it's time for this information to be decimated around the world and talked about and uh, discussed. Uh, uh, the Europeans did not bring civilization to them to the Americas, what Europeans brought to the Americas in colonial times was death and, uh, and uh, destruction. Mm. There's going to be people who are listening to this podcast who don't know who Edward Cornwallis was. So can you explain who he was and why it's so important that his statues have come down? Edward Cornwallis was a uh, 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 member of the British military, he uh, was involved in some atrocities in Scotland. He was, uh, him and his troops during the Jacobite Rebellion, uh, uh, slaughtered many of the wounded troops on the battlefield. 
and after a truce was called, went into the highlands and uh, murdered many of the uh, uh, gales that were located there. And in some instances, put some of these people within the, their houses, boarded windows and doors and burned the houses to the ground and such things like that. And then in 1949, he was appointed uh, British governor of the colony of Nova Scotia. And then uh, October of 1749, he issued a proclamation for the scalps of Mi'kmaq men, women, and children and paid a bounty for such. We Were Not the Savages, as you say, was first written in 1993, and the fourth edition is already out. That's a lot of time spanning uh, uh, different kinds of research and thinking uh, to go into this project. How is the fourth edition different uh, than the first? It's much different. I rewrote the book from start to finish. I clarified many points throughout it. And also throughout the book, I added 67 new pages. Uh, I have more information about residential school situations and uh, other settlements across the board. And uh, it's a complete uh, picture. And I also have in it a talk about the, the double standard where we're... Uh, required uh, uh, you know it's been widely publicized about the atrocities that occurred in Europe during the Second World War and so forth and so on however I also uh, uh, point out that there's a double standard there the atrocities that occurred in America have been kept a deep dark secret for much too long and uh, it's time for them to be brought out on the table and discussed broadly and be part of the history uh, books of the future. Hmm. What led you to write uh, in the first place? What, what, what made you uh, realize that there was definitely the need to have uh, a book like We Were Not the Savages written? Well, I was born in a society when 1938, when I was born, we were considered wards of the state. We had the same legal rights as drunks and insane persons. Uh, we were widely discriminated against. And uh, it, there were sections of the Indian Act that forbid us to have, a, let's say, a bottle of beer inside our, our internally or externally. On our, our possession, We it was an offense and we could be fined for it or jailed. There was a the provision of the Indian Act at that point in time that made it illegal for lawyers to uh, take on a case of an Indigenous person, Canadian Indigenous person, and uh, it, the lawyer was could be fined up to $500 for doing such without permission of the Superintendent General of Indian Affairs. And on and on, women, of course, lost their status when they married non-Indians and uh, and we were openly and widely discriminated against when I went to school in the 1940s. We were taught that the Mi'kmaq, for instance, were good at making backs, uh, baskets and axe handles, and that was about the size of the story told about our people. And uh, the, the Indian agents uh, employed by the department, uh, 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 should say the 
There wasn't a Department of Indian Affairs till 1961. Prior to that, Indian Affairs were handled by uh, several departments, including immigration, believe it or not. And Indian agents were like Jesus Christ. They had complete control over our lives, how we got food and how we got housing and uh, clothing and all the rest was uh, totally dependent on them. We were, I guess, treated like uh, inferior people that uh, also had uh, inferior intellectual abilities. And uh, uh, that's evidenced by the fact that you're reading We Were Not the Savages. See, I relate the story of uh, Picked a Landon and uh, uh, location of the uh, effluent. Uh, 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 from uh, a wood, uh, from a pulp mill going into Boat Harbor. And uh, while the uh, bureaucrats were getting this prepared to do so, they were lying their faces off to the big uh, 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 residents of Picta Landon, telling them that they could swim in the water afterwards and they uh, fish in it and so forth and so on. And they recorded all these things. And one thing in particular that I found really uh, galling was the fact that when they were paying uh, uh, Caucasian residents around uh, Boat Harbor for the loss of their property, one of the junior engineers, that's the chief engineer, Wigglesworth, what about the Indians? And his response was simply, so they're only Indians. And that was recorded in the record. So, <laughs> and uh, I, I got to thank them for their racism because without it, we couldn't have won a $35 million lawsuit in that instant. And I guess uh, the uh, thing to say here is never believe the propaganda that you spout over centuries, okay? Mm. And so all of this is, is, is what moved you to do that research and put it down on the page and make sure that people understood that these were lies, this was propaganda, this was not true. That's true. It's, uh, most of the information you'll find throughout the Americas in the past, uh, not all of it, of course. You know, you have some exceptions, like a book called 1492 was really, really good and uh, uh, Stolen Continents, another one. But most of it has uh, BS right through it. Uh, you know, uh, for instance, you're looking at, uh, when you're looking at the conquistadors going through a large city in, in uh, Central America and then finding that they had clean boulevards and wonderful streets. And this particular city was larger than Paris and London. And also they had running water and uh, sewer system, while at the same time, if you're looking at London and Paris at that point in time, the best way they got rid of their night soil was uh, in those cities was opening their windows and throwing the pots out onto the street. <laughs> so when you're looking at, at the uh, civilization, and uh, also you have to look at, at that point in time, such things in Europe were burning at the stake, uh, you know, key hauling and disemboweling and uh, these methods of execution. 
uh, the Mi'kmaq, for instance, were involved in such horrors. And uh, when you uh, come from a civilization that uh, has that as its history, and then go abroad and find another people and you brand them savages, I uh, kind of think it's a misuse of the term. Mm-hmm. There's an incredible amount of uh, resurgence and activism uh, among Mi'kmaq people and in general indigenous activism all across Canada. How how do you see where we are now? Uh, are things are you optimistic? Uh, are things still very difficult? Is it both? How how do you how do you see current movements for civil rights? I think we're making progress in this country now, and some of the uh, history that's been made readily available and uh, has been brought out in the closet and put on the table. Uh, that's scalp proclamations, residential schools, the horrors that went on in, in these institutions, what have you. And Canadians are beginning to learn just uh, uh, what actual history was. And as a result, I think we're seeing uh, improved relationships here in Nova Scotia. Economic development has taken off quite a quite well in several communities, in particular Member 2 and Millbrook. Uh, these two communities have, uh, you know, industries going, and now several bands have bought out uh, a large fish company and uh, Clearwater Fisheries and uh, a billion-dollar uh, uh, entity. And so we're beginning to be brought into the... Uh, economic field across the country and things are improving and uh, uh, I guess the best way to put it is that uh, propaganda of the past is being dispelled and uh, 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 put away in a closet where it belongs and the truth is being being uh, uh, digested by Canadian public and at large and uh, uh, society has become more inclusive in the last 30 years in particular. And I think we were not the savages had a lot to do with it here in Canada in particular. Going back to your book, Chief Lightning Bolts, what was your inspiration for this story? How did you come up with it? And for how long before it was published had you been thinking about it and working on it? Oh, I was writing that over a long period of time, several years actually, and uh, what I wanted to tell was the story of uh, prior to the onset of the European invasion in 1492 by Christopher Columbus and uh, uh, shown uh, what a real civilization was. So the Mi'kmaq, for instance, uh, operated on uh, four principles and was belief in a great spirit, honor was top amongst them and uh, sharing and and so forth and so on, and uh, so I want to tell the story of uh, the type of civilization. And believe it or not, in 1492, the Mi'kmaq probably had one of the highest standards of living in the world, and it was a totally democratic society where the people had uh, control of their uh, political lives and. Uh, the uh, chiefs served at the pleasure of the people, not at their their own pleasure. And if they, you know, it was a democratic society that was uh, 
very well established and had been for thousands of years prior to European invasion. And one of the reasons I think uh, European uh, leadership at that point in time, kings and queens and so forth and so on, were so dead set against the indigenous uh, civilizations of the Americas that most of them were democratic and uh, it uh, posed uh, a threat to the uh, long liberty of the uh, royal houses of Europe in particular. As this is a podcast celebrating Fernwood and Radical Publishing, I absolutely have to ask you, why is Radical Publishing, Radical Independent Publishing, important? Well, in uh, in 1993, the book was published, the first edition of We Were uh, Not Established was published by Nimbus, and I didn't like the book at that much. It had several names in it that I wasn't too uh, happy with, such as I had used the word Aboriginal to describe uh, Indigenous people. And uh, it was poorly edited, to be honest with you. So I uh, took it out of print in 1996, and I completely rewrote it. And at that point in time, I went back to Nimbus to see if they could... uh, uh, republish it and they declined so I was looking around for a publisher and uh, Rocky Jones a friend of mine I talked to him one day and he mentioned that there was a new publisher on uh, established on Golden Street by the name of Fernwood and Earl Sharp was the publisher and uh, I might be able to uh, I had visited several other publishers, by the way, uh, really big, big ones, to see if they were interested in publishing the book, and uh, they all declined. So I went to see Earl on Godgen Street in 1999, uh, uh, and uh, we had words, and uh, uh, Earl told me it was just a small publisher just getting up on on its feet, and uh, he wanted to publish it, but he couldn't afford it, so I uh, told him that if I come up with uh, enough funding, he said he needed $10,000, and I said if I came up with the funding, will he publish it, and that we agreed, and I did arrange to uh, uh, come up with the funding of 10000 and we went ahead, and I bought 2,000 copies of the first, of the second edition myself. And I gave them freely to the politicians and judges across Canada, and uh, uh, things took off from there. And uh, the relationship grew, and the book was uh, a success. And in 2006, we decided to do another, or 2005, we decided to do another publication, and uh, we came out with uh, the 2006 edition. And then many years passed, and then around uh, last year in 2021, I was having lunch with Earl, and, uh, and we were discussing it, and he said, why don't you write a new edition of uh, We Were Not the Savages? At first, I wasn't too enthusiastic about it, because I was 82 at that point in time, and some having some health issues, and 
then finally I made up my mind that I would do it and uh, we went ahead and have now uh, come out with the fourth and final edition of the book and I think it's uh, uh, in my opinion and I guess uh, I might be considered prejudiced here (laughs) (laughs) I think it's one of the finest history books that was ever written in this country wow wow I have a couple of other questions that are much shorter and that uh, I hope uh, you you like, that I, they're a little bit more fun, playful, I would say. Um, what is your favorite place to read and what is your favorite place to write? Oh, I do my writing home. And like when I wrote the first edition of We Were Not Savages, I had a full-time uh, job as executive director of the Confederacy of Mainland Mi'kmaq and I was uh, publishing the newspaper, the Mi'kmaq Melisset Nation News, and setting up several corporations and raising money. I was on the Human Rights Commission <laughs> writing columns for the Halifax Herald. And and I wrote the first edition sometimes between 3 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock before I had to have my breakfast and head up the tour for my job, Millbrook for my job. So that uh, was a... Uh, very good experience in the past, and uh, I'd do it again. I, I had a purpose in mind. I didn't like the situation our people were uh, esteem, our people were held in, low esteem, our people were held in, and I decided to do something about it in the 1980s, and uh, uh, the best way to do it was put the truth out on the table and back it up, and the first... When you uh, pick up the book and read it, uh, I simply state that this is a book is based on European records. It's not uh, verbal by any means, you know. Uh, uh, so uh, if you want to argue with me, you have to dig up your ancestors and argue with them. <laughs> <laughs> what books are on your to-read pile right now? Oh, I like to read fiction. I get piles of fiction. I I, I read a few uh, uh, history books and things like that. If I come across something interesting, I'll read that on the Internet. Um, I get quite a bit of information from time to time, and I like to read that. But, but uh, at 83, I'll be 84 in December, on December 5th, and uh, I've uh, decided I'm going to enjoy reading uh, a lot of uh, novels, and uh, that's exactly what I'm doing right now. Mm. Well, that might answer the next question, but perhaps you've got other answers to this as well. What are you doing for fun these days? Well, Pat and I, uh, my wife, we're running around, eating out, and uh, traveling as much as we can around the province. Uh, We uh, did take a trip up to uh, uh, New Brunswick a couple of weeks ago to visit our granddaughter as she was attending school at Mount Ellison in Sackville and uh, just enjoying life. And right now I have several health issues. I've been uh, diagnosed with lung cancer this year and... uh, it has spread to my liver, and now I'm looking forward to some chemotherapy uh, treatment. But uh, 
hopefully it'll go well and I don't have too many side effects from it. And uh, maybe I'll be around for a couple more years to uh, uh, see how things are going. Mm, Well, we certainly hope so. What is a book that has changed your life? No book has changed my life. This experience has changed my life, and it goes way back to when I was a child. And uh, uh, when I was very young, probably three or four years old, my father was away and uh, didn't get home that weekend because of a storm. And, uh, of course, he had no car. He had to walk to 20 miles from where he worked. And he just started that job, and uh, we ran out of food on a Friday. And on Monday morning, my mother and I walked over to the Indian agency through the woods, and which was about a mile or so through the woods. And we got there at 8 o'clock when the agency opened, and she asked him for uh, uh, some assistance because uh, we had nothing to eat for three days. And... He made her uh, beg and cry for three hours, and finally, at quarter to 12 that day, he finally called her in and gave her a small ration. And I looked at him that day, and as young as I was, I said to myself, when I grow up, no bastard like you was going to do that to me. (laughs) And and, uh, I think that changed my life. And... and, uh, then I left home when I was 14 and went to Boston and uh, was working there. And I always, uh, you you know, we were taught in school that we were an inferior people, that uh, uh, if we wanted to succeed in life, we had to adopt a white way, which was the right way, etc. And uh, I, I was working in a hat factory in Boston, this uh, black lady from the who uh, originated from Mississippi, I believe, called me over one day and she told me, that was probably around 17, 18, and she said, "Uh, boy, you walk around here with your head down like you think everybody here is better than you. And uh, she said, asked me what I knew about my people, and I said, very little. She says, why don't you uh, learn about them, and perhaps you'll be very proud of it when you get all the facts together and uh, by the way get your head up off the floor and uh, because you're just as good as anyone here and probably better than a lot of them and that inspired me to get on with life and begin to change things and when I was 20, uh, 21 I decided I should come back to Nova Scotia and upgrade my education and I applied for admission to Success Business College in Toronto in 1960 and was accepted and then went to the Indian agent out in Chauvinacti and asked for assistance, uh, funding assistance. And he told me, why don't you get a pick and shovel and do what you're best suited for? I took issue with that, went to my Aunt Becky, and she knew Cyril Kennedy, who was the MP for that area at the time. And she contacted Mr. Kennedy, and Kennedy got a call to the minister in charge of Indian Affairs at that time. And uh, by the time the day was over, I had funding to go to business school. Wow. (laughs) So, 
And uh, then I worked at many vocations. I worked at a, a slaughterhouse as an accountant, as a furniture company, and then non-public funds at Statico Naval Base. And then Indian Affairs recruited me in 1951 and uh, worked for them for 15 years. And then uh, several chiefs, uh, six chiefs in 1985, wanted me to start a tribal council for them and the Mi'kmaq, uh, Confederacy of Mainland Mi'kmaq, and I did and set that up, and that gave me the liberty to begin to think about writing books, and uh, and uh, at the time, I was writing newspaper columns also. This is the last question. Um, who's someone that you admire? Nelson Mandela, I think, was my... Uh, one of one of the greatest heroes I know of, uh, spending all that time in prison and uh, doing so to establish the fact that the uh, blacks of South Africa were equal intelligence and uh, to uh, the Caucasians of uh, South Africa, the whites of South Africa, and finally having him rise to the presidency of the country and. Uh, uh, bring any equality among the citizens of the country and end in apartheid. Apartheid, by the way, was uh, modeled to a large extent of the, the Indian Act here in Canada and in, in the United States. Wonderful. Danny, Paul, thank you so much for this conversation. Well, you're welcome and uh, glad to have the chat. You've been listening to my conversation with Danny Paul as part of the 30 Wood podcast series. Episodes come out every two weeks, so be sure to check back to hear your favorite Fernwood authors. 30 Wood is hosted and produced by me, Nora Loretto, with lots of help from the team at Fernwood. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share your favorite episodes. Fortress of magnitude, they can't subdue. Liberation is radical. You're telling me my dreams have to be practical when all these global systems are tyrannical. Point of view, more than two.